Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Kevin Christie, and this is Weekend Bigots. As a journalist with more than 14 years' experience, I've decided that the time has come to examine the thorny issue of sectarianism in Scottish football. To gain a deeper understanding, I'm going to interview a variety of people who have been involved in the sharp end of the game in this country. And they'll say to you, it's almost like they're brainwashing you. Well, how catchy the music is, how much the beat is, and everyone's around you, and you do just feel a part of something. But back in those days, they were just, well, to us, they were just Rangers songs. And the fans that are there, it's alive and in their conscience all the time there. The Catholic Protestant thing is, is very alive and well, unfortunately, in Scotland. And you just have to go to any Celtic Rangers match to, to see that. Well, pe- people would chant IRA songs at football matches, but they wouldn't have a clue what the IRA actually is or who they really were or what the history of Ireland was. It was kind of... When you look back now, you think they were just dafties because they were shouting about stuff they knew nothing about. In the six-part documentary series, we'll look at the issue from the late 60s and early 70s right through to the present day. For this week's episode, we're going to talk to two unique individuals who have combined playing football, managing professional teams and teaching. Terry Christie, an ex-headmaster and manager of Merribank Thistle, Stenhousemuir and Alloa Athletic, is widely regarded as one of the best part-time managers this country has produced and gained fame as the duffel coat-wearing cup shock expert. And the fans that are there, it's alive and in their conscience all the time. They are the Catholic... Uh, the Catholic Protestant thing is, is very alive and well, unfortunately, in Scotland. And you just have to go to any Celtic Rangers match to, to see that. Tom Hendry is a former manager of St Mirren, Berwick Rangers and Allo Athletic and was once a pupil of Terry's at Forrester High School in Edinburgh before going on, like his friend and mentor, to play professionally for Dundee FC, amongst others. I don't feel that, they, that football fans have a right just because they pay their money they can behave the way they behave I think some things have to be done and it's difficult Both guests provide insights into the issue of sectarianism in schools and talk about the concept of learned behaviour and what can be done to challenge and improve the problem They also touch on attitudes in the professional game towards teachers and speak about the resentment they often felt from those making a full-time living from football At this point I'll come clean and admit that I also refer to Terry as Dad now let's hear from Terry and Tom. So I'll start with you, Terry. If you just give us a just give us a, a little bit about your experiences growing up as as a young Catholic footballer in Edinburgh, who's 
went on to sign for Dundee. And right. Well, I was I'd very much had a Catholic upbringing and was very much involved at the church in the Catholic church till I was about age twenty five, when I sort of well, I think the phrase is lost my faith and and wandered into the the life of a, a non Catholic. And I, I actually started teaching in St David's at Dalkeith in a Catholic school. So. In my early years, I was very much the, the staunch Catholic, and uh, and later, but after one year at St David's, I decided that uh, I'd rather go out into the wide world, and I left St David's and took up a. I was a chemistry teacher, took up a job teaching chemistry in Forrester High School, and that's where I met a very talented twelve-year-old uh, footballer called Tom Hendry, who was uh, in my school football team for. Four years and uh, was a really, really exciting and talented young footballer. So, Terry, were you aware of any differences, like growing up a Catholic? Was there was there rivalry between Protestants and Catholics? I know you went to St. Denise Primary School. Did you play Protestants, Catholics? Was it was it a, a big deal? Or I, I think in Scotland, most people would say that Edinburgh is the further east you go, the less uh, of the of the religious divide, and. I brought up, I wasn't really a great religious divide. We never played uh, Catholics v Protestants. But when I went to Dundee, that was the, the standard team. I think Tom would agree with that. It was yeah. the Prodies against the Catholics when you were having a five-a-side. But in my youth, and that was in the, the, the 1950s, we really didn't do that. There was great things called take-ons in your street, and it was your street against the other street, and nobody really bothered about religion. We did bother whether you were hibs or hearts and... But no, we really didn't bother about religion. So you, you taught Tom at, at Forrester High School, which is right next to a Catholic school, St Augustine's, yeah? yeah? Tom, just you tell us about your experiences, if there was, like, who you supported in growing up. and Yeah, I mean, like Terry said, I, don't, I didn't experience much of that in, in my youth. Um, playing football was something we did. We played against Catholic school primary teams, but you didn't make any real big deal of that. I think the first time it became apparent to me is when I went to Forrester and we had a Catholic school next door. And there was always a wee bit of rivalry, but it was it was pleasant banter rather than anything really serious. And I've not really come against that much um, in my career as, as a football manager, as a football player. Religion doesn't play that big a part in football apart from the whole film yeah. uh, and that's been my experience in football generally Did you notice a difference though when you were let's say when you were manager St Mirren did you notice that that that, that had crept into the, the the match or something there was there was a wee bit more No again nothing really that serious nothing a few chants from fans yeah when we played Celtic or we played Rangers there was one or two things said but nothing that you would really write home about and nothing you would really say was uh, you know a big influence in my career so that, that's interesting would you consider it to be a problem in Scotland then would you say it's still a, a still a problem or is it more you, you say it's contained in the west more than it's a massive problem it is uh, when I stopped being a manager I was a, a delegate at Premier League matches for eight years and I had to go about giving a report on the game and the behaviour of the fans in the game. And if you did a Celtic and Rangers, any match in which Celtic and Rangers are involved, sectarianism is huge. And the fans that are there, it's alive and in their conscience all the time. They are the Catholic, uh, the Catholic Protestant thing is is very alive and well, unfortunately, in Scotland. And you just have to go to any Celtic Rangers match to, to see that. 
Do you think this is learned behaviour from kids? Do you think they learn it in the in the at home and it translates into schools or? Yeah, I think it does. I think there's a you know there is a big family thing with with any religion. Uh, you know, you get your religion basically from your parents. The parents introduce you to religion, and I think one of the biggest mistakes we did in Scotland was we had separate schools. We had schools for Catholics and schools for Protestants, which has perpetuated the the problem that we have, and that's one of the things that. You know, for me, religion and, and education, it doesn't have to be as it is in Scotland. That's that's a common theme that's ran through the episodes. Um, we've met resistance to the separate schools. It's Terry, a, what's your opinion? It's a disgrace. The fact in Scotland that we have, uh, that if you're a Catholic, you go to one school, and if you're a Protestant, you go to the other school. And the, the, the families that are doing, are, that identify themselves as see, are, are ever-increasing Asian Scots people, they they don't you know what school do they go to? Uh, it's a disgrace. And when I uh, got children, um, and my kids, although I had been brought up a Catholic, I sent them to the non-denominational school. There've been efforts to try and stop that, but with you know with not much success because I think the the politicians see it as a vote loser, you know, because the Catholics hang on to their their uh, their Catholic schools very dearly. I can understand that, but you know it's wrong. It's, I think it, it's possibly a traditional Labour vote from the west of Scotland. That's right. they're, they're worried. They're worried about it, but maybe that's not such. Well, it's the one issue that the Labour, the party of liberalism and uh, freedom of the and separation of state and school, it's the one issue they won't take on because it is a massive vote loser. Now that Labour's lost, lost all their votes, they might take it on. But you don't hear the SNP talking about it very loudly. There's no, none of the uh, the political parties have high on their agenda the fact that. Uh, separate schools are wrong, basically wrong, and something should be done about it. So just to be clear, you, you, you think religion should definitely be taken out of education then? as I mean, it could be taught as a subject, but as a way of separation, it's it's completely wrong, yeah. Absolutely wrong. Yeah. You know, I don't know anybody how you can defend it other than, you know, when I was at, I taught for a year at St David's Dalkeith, and then I didn't like, I wanted to get out away from the Catholic, which was a pretty suffocating world. And when I applied for jobs in non-Catholic schools, the head teacher of the school uh, was distraught and told me, you have no idea what you're going into, Terry. You know, the Protestant schools, you're going into hell. You know, I never believed it. Literally ah, hell. Thought, yeah. You know, that's <laughs> it. You're damned. Your soul's eternal damnation. You know what they're like in these Protestant schools. Now, I spent all my life playing playing with Protestants and they were my mates. I didn't, I, I didn't believe one word of it. I was 23 at the time. And I went to Forrester, maybe 24, and I went to Forrester, had six years there and could not have been happier. And I've spent uh, uh, 37 years teaching and all but one of them was in the non-denominational schools. I'll move on. We had Stuart Dougal, the referee, was on and we're asking him about, do you think there's a perception that the old firm get refereeing decisions? And he, he spoke about, you know, the concept of the mason in the black. That's the, the sort of thing that, that he was hit with. Some of the singing you get, you know, obviously the Celtic fans used to be singing who's the mason in the black, but I, I always thought it was who's amazing in the black that they were singing at me. Have you any experience of that time with, with St Mern, do you think? It was oh, absolutely. Time? I mean, it's well known that it was very difficult to get a, a penalty at Parkhead or at Ibrox. Uh, you could just go through the record books and see how many times that's actually happened. It's not... You don't referees don't cheat. They don't make conscious bad decisions. But the pressure of the fans, the the pressure of all the people there, 
bawling and shouting at them and giving them a hard time, you can see sometimes why it just swings their opinion slightly towards the the big side. And I've always felt the big teams always got the big decisions at the big at the right time, and that made a a huge difference to you. Even even when we were at St Mirren and playing against Celtic or Rangers, you always felt the referee was slightly more lenient towards either these two clubs rather than St Mirren. And that's more a symptom of a big club. That's, I mean, it's, that's prevalent in England as well. Yeah, it's a big club, wee club thing, yeah, yeah, definitely. I didn't see it from a religious point of view at all. I just seen it from the point of view they were a bigger club, there were more support, there was bigger pressure on the referee and all that. Definitely, the referees are only human and they're affected by the amount of people who are prepared to shout and ball at them when they make a decision. When you were growing up, I mean, Rangers weren't signing Catholic players when you were when you were both playing, but was that something you were aware of or was it sort of thought that that wouldn't be a team, particularly you, Terry, that Catholics would want to play for? or What was it? Well, it was very much football in Scotland that, that Rangers did not play a Catholic. And I think it was Graham Souness who signed the first Catholic. Was it Morris Johnson? Yeah, Morris Mor- Johnson. Yeah. yeah, Morris Johnson. And that was a sea change in Scotland. Johnson now becomes the most prominent Catholic player to represent Celtic's traditional rivals and another expensive contribution to Rangers' European Cup ambitions. The player says he's delighted to have crossed the traditional divide, but he and his family will not be living in Glasgow, where loyalties still run deep. You know, we would think that if you watch Rangers run out in the park, there's a good number of the players blessing themselves. Like, um, that, for a Rangers player to be feeling quite comfortable, we, we have moved on, so we shouldn't, all, we shouldn't say it's all bad, bad, bad. We've moved on. And to see Nico Katic coming out at Ibrox Tunnel and blessing himself not once, not twice, but three times, because that's obviously his pre-match routine. So it has been a, it is a change. And there are stories abound in Scotland about players that Rangers couldn't sign that other clubs uh, got them. You know, because they, they, we can't sign them and, and the managers of Rangers tipping off somebody else, you know, that's a good player for you, but you can't sign them. Was there a general acceptance of that throughout, say, the 60s, 70s, that certain players wouldn't sign for Rangers? And, and I mean, it was... It, I was, I was, it was just, historical. Yeah. It, was, it was just the way it was. I mean, it was historically, Rangers signed, didn't sign Catholic players and everyone just accepted it and got on with it. And there was an analysis of the player's religion and also their family. Somebody that could say, oh, do you know his wife's a Catholic? I think Alex Ferguson had, might have had that, yeah. Hey, you know the, the well-known story that Sir Alec Ferguson was at Rangers, but he married a Catholic lady, Cathy, and of course he thinks, I, I, I'm maybe putting words into his mouth, but there was a feeling that that was the reason why he didn't progress as a Rangers player, as he might have done. might have stayed longer and been more regularly accepted in the team. Well, that's some story, yeah, but his wife being a Catholic, yeah. And, and it, it was, uh, if you had a couple of drinks in a pub, it could become up in the conversation, you know. Yeah. I know and everybody can tell you many of the 1967 Lisbon Lions were Catholics and many <laughs> were Protestants. I think the majority of them were actually non-Catholics. And of course, you played. You grew up with John Gregg, Rangers legend, and and um, played with him at schools level. Yeah, I played with John Gregg in the Edinburgh schools. He was a wee bit better than me, mm-hmm. but uh, in 1955, 19, about 1958 or so, 57, we were in the Edinburgh schools team together. John Gregg is totally not interested in. Uh, sectarianism or religion, but he's just interested in being the great player that he became. There's the answer. Joe Kent trying ahead of there, appeals that he had been fouled. The referee waving play on for a moment 
He gave the Celtic fans some hope that he appeared to run to the spot, but Webb play on. McDonald. McLean. Russell must score. Dragonfuck finishes it off. How do you think we can tackle it then? I mean, it's it's, it's a bit difficult to get a crowd of 50,000 people to stop singing songs. And um, Do you think more needs to be done to educate the kids? Or is there a way? What about sanctions? Maybe UEFA can clamp down on that kind of thing. Sanctions are difficult, liability. difficult in football because they have to be appropriate to the, to the offence. And to be fair, Catholic and Protestant isn't the thing that they're on about now. It's much more racism yeah. rather than the, the, the Catholic Protestant thing. And and rightly so. Uh, you know, the it's just going to always be there. It, it, so as, as long as you have separate schools in Scotland, it's always going to be there. It's never going to be... It'll never go away. But we just hope that there's more tolerance. People are more tolerant of other people. And I think the, the actual education they get in schools about religious education is very helpful because they look at all different religions as well as just Catholic and Protestant and that's helping but it's a very slow process Did you encounter any any racism? Did you obviously did you, like, do you have kids being racist ever and you had to give them a row about it or when you were teachers? Well, yeah I was uh, spent my last 16 years as head teacher at Musselburgh Grammar School and there wasn't many examples of uh, racism we didn't have many uh, black kids there but there was one or two and I, and, and as teachers you, you clamp down on that right away uh, Tom is a much more recent teacher than me and he might be able to speak about that yeah, better yeah. yeah I think definitely yeah in the last five or six years of my teaching career um, there was definitely a undercurrent of racism in schools with kids you know Kids are very cruel and they say things off the top of their off the top of their head and, and sometimes it's very hurtful and you had as Terry said, you had to clamp down that. And I had a, several situations where I had to say to people that was totally inappropriate what you're what you're accusing this person of being. And the you know, it was not just the the, the colour, it was also the fact there was a lot more Chinese people, there was a lot more Polish people coming in. And, you know, there is still this them and us type of thing that the kids have that they're not the same as us which is totally false and you've just got to keep telling them that they're wrong and their assumptions and make sure that they are much more tolerant Did you find football helped with that? Like bringing people together like yeah. school teams and stuff Yeah, I think football had a big influence in, 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 in that and certainly when you played with people when I, once we I went professional if there were Catholics or Protestants in this team, you didn't, it didn't make any difference. Coloured players, I didn't play with that many coloured players in my playing career, but certainly I had a good few coloured players when I was a manager. And uh, there was still that undercurrent of racism in, in football. Um, our young boy, Junior Mendes, who played at St Mern, who yeah. was a terrific talent, and he got, you know, terrible abuse from fans. The clash at the Shybury Excelsior Stadium was a night to remember for Junior Mendes. After a mistake by Airdrie skipper Jimmy Sanderson, the St Mirren striker scored a class goal. But then in the second half, Mendes goes down in the box and Airdrie keeper John Martin reacts furiously to what he sees as a dive by the Saints man. No penalty kick was awarded, but Airdrie were to be heavily penalised nonetheless. Referee Stuart Dougal ordered Martin from the field for his verbal attack on Mendes. Airdrie thought they were the victims in this row. The ref had other ideas. And really, just inappropriate what was said. And I don't feel that football fans 
have a right just because they pay their money they can behave the way they behave I think some things have to be done and it's difficult to, to have sanctions there but just for the fact that they could come in and totally abuse players for their colour or their, or their religion ah, it's stuff you wouldn't get away with in the street no, absolutely and I feel it's it's t- it's a terrible indictment of Scottish football that we suffer from that. I remember Vic Kazoo, the famous Victor Kazoo, <laughs> <you'd say, laughs> playing for Merribank. You saying uh, Vic, uh, yeah, Victor was a real character. I signed him from Albion Rovers for for uh, Merribank, and he was at that time probably the only black player playing in Scotland. Yeah. Tam played with him for uh, for a while, and he got terrible abuse. I mean, he just got abused. Non-stop. What do you think, Tam? Can you remember Victor? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I remember Victor, and he was, he was as Terry said, he was the right character. He seemed to struggle off. It yeah, didn't yeah. seem to affect him as much as perhaps it did. It definitely affected Junior Mendes. He was a much more gentle character. Victor was, you know, a extrovert, an extrovert lad, yeah. so. Gallus Glaswegian, sorry, wasn't it? A Gallus lad. I, yeah, yeah. And he, he laughed it off most of the time. But yeah, t- as Terry said, I mean, you could hear it clearly from the, the from the the crowd. Uh, and it was completely over the top. But go credit to Victor, he just seemed to shrug it off and go on with it. But we've got to really fight this racism and, and, and when the, everybody's got to be onto that. We sometimes pat ourselves on the back a bit as if the Scot- it's not you know really rife in Scotland. It is rife. I remember going back to going to a match at Hampden, Scotland visit England and England had three black centre-forwards and they received absolute abuse from the start of the match to the finish of the worst kind with all the animal noises and so on and it made me ashamed to be Scottish it really did and that'd it, be the early 80s it was yeah, uh, and, yeah. you know there was an Arsenal winger playing and they were just abused it was, it's dreadful it's the same with the, the member the, Mark Walters who played with Rangers the, yeah, the, yeah. banana skins were thrown yeah. from the crowd onto the pitch which is just way over the top and I mean that's something that as Terry said that was I was disgusted by it. Down in the corner, quite tragically, I mean, bananas are raining in on Walters. There's Roberts. And that is a PA announcement which must be unprecedented, asking that objects are not thrown on to the pitch. And I can count at least about a couple of dozen bananas. The whole thing is distasteful. I just couldn't believe that there was people who would take a banana to a, a game to take the skin off and want to throw it towards a player as if there's some... Not on. Totally not on. Right, well, we'll come to the sort of second part of this then, which is something that, that our listeners will be interested in and I'm, I want to ask you is about. And that's, as teachers in the professional game, did you did you come up against sort of resentment from people that that, that made their living from football like their whole lives in terms of your coaching methods or oh, here come the teachers because I remember that kind of stuff going on where there was Craig Brown and Andy Roxburgh obviously and yourselves just um, yeah, tell me what you think about that you do get a, quite a bit stick for being a teacher and there is even amongst the well back when I was a manager for 30 years you know I always made a point of making sure I didn't act like a school teacher when I was a manager
by getting sent to the stand. But regularly getting sent to the stand <laughs> and using what is euphemistically called industrial language. Uh, but you know, if you were a school teacher type, it was really, you know, that was, oh, no, no, I can't be bothered with him. And and it still holds there, oh, he's a school teacher. Who wants a school teacher, you know? And and I think even in employment, getting uh, board of, boards of directors to employ you, they were concerned about employing a school teacher. I became a head teacher. Guys. Ah, who wants uh, somebody telling us and giving us rows and so on? So, look, I think there, there is an attitude against teachers in Scotland, in football. You know, I'm not saying it's massive, but there's a suspicion there. And Which is strange, because you would think coaching would be a, it'd be a perfect fit for a teacher. I mean, it's... Yeah, but, but as Terry said, I, I also thought that being in teaching... Being a football manager, a football player was not helpful. People didn't look at you. There was always a suspicion that were you really going to be committed to the school because you had this other job that was one of the loves of your life. It was the love of my life. I'm sure it was the love of Terry's life. Um, you, but th- it was ridiculous that you could be going for a job interview and they would ask you questions in education about your commitment to the football, which had nothing to do with being a teacher. Yes. But, yeah. but the, the teaching profession weren't very comfortable with football managers or football players and the football profession weren't very comfortable with teachers either and especially maths teachers like myself that was like, oh, you're a maths teacher, you know. Somehow that gave our team an advantage over somebody else because I could do maths. <laughs> what a, a money ball yeah. thing, yeah. yeah. I once went for a job as a head teacher at uh, one of Edinburgh's best schools and uh, I thought I was doing really well and then... The interview was finished and the, ch- the chairperson said, any, any, anybody got any other questions for Mr Christie? And the guy said, yeah, I've got one question. Oh, yeah, what's the question? If you were offered the Hibs job, would you take it? <laughs> <laughs> it was a knife to the heart. I knew that was my ch- chances of getting that head teacher job. And uh, no, I, d- I didn't get it. You came close to the Hibs job a couple of times and you would have gave up the teaching, Dad. I know that. I would, I would have, for the Hibs, I would, have done, I would have done anything for the Hibs. Anything for the Hibs. <laughs> and Tom, you, you quit the teaching to, take, to go full-time with St Mirren, yeah? And then you went back, is that Yeah, is that's that right, right, yeah. yeah. Um, that was a big decision at the time. You know, I had a, I was a head of department, head of master department. Um, I was just going to do a, a secondment to be a, a deputy head teacher for nine months on a, a maternity leave. Um, and then I got the phone call and the opportunity to go to St Mirren and I thought I would always regret if I didn't take the chance. For the first time in 23 years, St Mirren were first division champions. And well worthy. It means everything. Uh, you know, we've led from the start of the division. You know, everyone wrote us off and said we'd never stay there. You know, I said the bubble would burst, but it didn't burst, and we kept going. And to win 3 0 in the final game in front of your home fans, well, this will be a memory I'll remember the rest of my life. I mean, it could have all went wrong. It was a great time for me. You know, they won the first division, we played, went to the Premier League, and that was that was terrific. And then when I got the sack from St Mirren, you had to look for full-time employment again and the, the, nothing else would come in my mind that I could possibly do, so I went back to being a teacher again. And was that quite... I mean, math teachers were short of them. I mean, that must... I'm not saying it was easy, but you'd be, you would be yeah, it wasn't, readily, it was, readily employable. There were several opportunities to go back to different schools and I took, chose the school that was closest to my, where I lived at the time and uh, went back there. Uh, but you're right, there, there was a shortage of math teachers and... Uh, it was easier for me than I'm sure for other people who've in different walks of life to try and go from full-time professional football into another job. And 
did you find it? I mean, was it a lot different, or was it was it like dealing with pupils again? Yeah, in some respects, you know, that was the same run for four years, and yeah, things had moved on, you know, as it always does in education. You know, all of a sudden there was, you know, there were smart boards and there was computers and there was calculators that were so much more sophisticated than I, when I was there, um, and you had to relearn quite a bit. But teaching's teaching and maths is maths. You know, one and one's always going to be two no matter what calculator you use. But uh, yeah, t- I found it a bit of a struggle to start with. But it's like anything else. Once you've been back two or three months, you're just back to what you were doing before. And I always, I always remember, like when we were growing up, Dad, you saying that you thought you might be bored if you'd gone full-time as a manager because it was very much train for a couple of hours then they go and they, they went to play snooker or something like that and it's like what do you do with your, yourself you know I, I was a manager for a lot of years but I never really enjoyed the training you know it wasn't a great passion of mine uh, training the players I did uh, like having a a session before a match or organising them for the match and, and laying out the tactics so you know it was it was a, a, I had several chances to have other full time jobs but you know I loved being a head teacher and it was really only a big club or something that the Hibs were. There was, it was a no-brainer. But uh, management is a, a job where you have, you know, some rest, but the pressure on match days and the consequences of match days are considerable. And Tom, having managed in the Premier League, knows more about that than me. You know, being a full-time manager, if you look at Klopp, he's managing every, every Wednesday and then Saturday at the weekend. And the pressure's on these matches and... You know, you just look at the manager to look at Frank Lampard. I mean, he seems to have aged 10 years since he became a yeah, manager. Yeah. So it's, it's, although it's, you know, a job where the physical output uh, during the week isn't great, the pressures on the job are, are you know, are tremendous. What is it, a manager, the average length of a manager's career is about a year and a half. Yeah, I mean, if you stay three years at a club now, it's... And that's an event, eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we'll just wrap up on this, but do you miss your involvement in the game? Is it do you miss playing? Is playing still the best thing, or do you miss the managing more than playing? Or I enjoyed both equally. I enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, being a player. One thing about the player was, I mean, the game was finished. That was your, you know, that was your mind. You finished the game. You went away, enjoyed yourself, and you never thought anything about it until the the following week. As a manager, when you lose, it stays with you and you worry about it, especially if you're a full-time manager and it's your, it's your full-time occupation. And I found that there was plenty to do. I mean, I was never bored as a full-time manager. There was always players you wanted to go and see. There was matches you wanted to see. And you you lived 24-7 for the players. If there was something wrong, if some of the players were ill or was something you were, you know, and I'm a bit of a teacher, like, try to help them do the right thing and, and, and grow up properly and... Um, you know, so there was lots to do, and as Terry said, the one thing that people surprised when I say I never enjoyed the games, I never enjoyed the ninety minutes during the ninety minutes. It was not that an enjoyable experience for me unless we're winning five 0 and there was ten minutes to go, and you could mm, enjoy yeah. the last ten minutes. But the actual games themselves, especially when you're full time. But Terry, when he was at Meadowbank, and then myself. You did live the games, you, you, and they were they were high pressure. Even though people wouldn't think it is because it wasn't high level football, but it was your job, and it was you wanted to win games, and you were so keen to win, and you were so you know worked up. You never really enjoyed the, the you enjoyed after obviously the victories were tremendous, and the, after the game you enjoyed that. But again, you were mine was very quickly going on to the next game and preparation and what you're going to do and and you were having teams watched and you were looking at the tactics and so on and so forth so but 
Yeah, I enjoyed football. I enjoyed football management Monday to Friday, but I didn't enjoy it so much in the 90 minutes. See, I was different. I didn't enjoy it as much during the week, but I loved the Saturdays. You know, I just love the challenge of the match and adrenaline flowing. Yeah, yeah. I hate it, but you get beat, and you're a manager and your team's beat. I mean, that is just the worst. I mean, yeah, weekend ruined. Oh, you just you oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're just down, and you you take a bit of picking up, and that's when there's a danger of uh, Scotland's favourite drink <laughs> <laughs> kicking in, and you know you've you've got to be careful of that because it's it, iron bruise. Uh, it's just so easy uh, to have a couple of whiskeys and. You know, try to make you relax. We'll wrap up there, but thanks very much for coming in. Thanks, thanks, Tom and Dad. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, thanks, Kev. For the final week, I took in my first old firm derby, and we had the dubious privilege of speaking to two football fans who identify as weekend bigots. We even had hearts pals and that that went through Ibrox and they'll say to you, it's almost like they're brainwashing you with how catchy the music is, how much the beat is and everyone's around you and you do just feel a part of something. And you do get that venomous, especially at, you know, an old fun game. You can download Weekend Bigots wherever you listen to your podcasts, but for exclusive, interactive, immersive content, download the NTL app for iOS and Android. If you like what you heard, please rate and review Weekend Bigots and help other listeners discover us too. This is a Laudable production for The Scotsman. You can find out more about Laudable and its other local podcasts by following us on social media. On Twitter, where we are at Laudable Pods and Instagram by searching for Laudable underscore podcasts.